remember some years ago listening to the news on Radio 4 whilst driving my car and I remember very well the newsreader announcing that IBM was going to make uh, a number of people redundant, a number of job losses, thousands of job losses. But then the newsreader immediately continued by saying, but most of them will be in Europe, she said, as if Europe was obviously some other place, workers in the UK could relax, the job losses were going to be in that other place called yeah. Europe. Well, it's examples like that, which, uh, as I say, I was driving my car, I probably honked the car horn at the man in front for no obvious reason, just out of anger at uh, the statement being made. But it's obviously timely that we have a debate uh, here uh, this evening. And we're pleased to host, that is the LSE, is pleased to host this debate with uh, Radio 4. I'm told that it's the eighth such event uh, in this uh, series, in this year. We obviously hope that the collaboration will continue. Obviously, seven previous audiences have behaved themselves terribly well. So we hope this evening will not be uh, an exception. Uh, I'm also uh, asked to point out that at the end, the BBC may wish to do some retakes, uh, so can you please stay seated until it's confirmed that the recording has actually uh, finished. The other piece of information which you will be interested to know is that the broadcast of this debate, I'm told, will be on the evening of the 8th of August uh, and will be repeated a few days later on the 11th of August, and no doubt there will be available a podcast afterwards. And uh, the colleague in the audience has just reminded me it would be appropriate for those of you with mobile phones to switch them off uh, at this stage. But I'm sure you're all here uh, expectant uh, for the debate. So can I please ask you to give a very warm LSE welcome to each of our speakers and our chairman for this evening, Evan Davis. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. Hello and welcome to our debate tonight. We're here at the London School of Economics and Political Science in the Old Theatre with a large audience of interested members of the public and students from the London School of Economics too, who are also interested, of course. Our motion tonight is Britain should remain within the EU. If you want to join the debate, you can. We're on, on Twitter, the hashtag, hash LEC uh, Europe is the uh, suggested hashtag. And it is fair to say Britain's relationship with Europe is a very unsettled one right now. The Eurozone is struggling to stay intact. To do so, there's the prospect of fast and deep integration, banking union, fiscal union, political union. And if it all happens, Britain's relationship with the European Union will clearly be affected. You may take one of many, many different views on the way to go from here, from the most sceptic to the most enthusiastic. You have those who think we should get out, be shot of the whole thing. Some think we should renegotiate, and failing that, we should leave. Some think that we should try to renegotiate, and failing that, we should stay in. Some think we can stay where we are, and maybe there are some courageous folk, it would have to be said, who think we should join up the euro and be full members of the new, newly developing, more potentially more integrated eurozone. So many, many different views out there. We have cut the cake today by slicing it between the ins and the outs. But as chairperson, I am taking, I am interpreting our motion tonight to, to imply the following, that you vote yes, you want to stay in, 
If you believe you want to stay in, you may believe you want to renegotiate, but notwithstanding the result of that renegotiation, you would rather stay in than come out. You vote no if you would come out uh, if, if the renegotiation failed. So if you want to come out or if you want to renegotiate but you'll leave if they don't give us our terms, then you vote no. That's the way I'm interpreting the motion tonight. Now, it'd be nice to start with a show of hands so we get the mood of the meeting. So I'm going to ask the audience to give us a show of hands. And I think we'll have a call of voices too, because this is radio. So we'll have a call of voices and a show of hands. If there were a referendum tomorrow, you're going to shout yay or nay, by the way. I don't know, debates, we, don't, we do it yay or nay, not yes or no. Uh, if you would like to stay in, shout yay. If you would like to leave in a referendum tomorrow, shout nay. Nay! Okay, fairly evenly divided. Can we just do the show of hands as well? Yays, show your hands. Nays, show your hands. Oh, I would say it's overwhelmingly, um, I'd say overwhelmingly positive. Overwhelmingly positive uh, mood in the audience here. Uh, positive in the sense of voting yes rather than no. Right, we're going to vote again after the debate. We'll see whether that has changed. Now, that debate, it is asymmetric. We have one person proposing the case for staying in. He'll answer the arguments put to him by a panel of critics. Uh, and we have a panel of critics here who won't all come at the issue from the same direction. We'll start with the man who's going to make the case for staying in. He's Sir Stephen Wall, Tony Blair's former EU advisor. You're a brave man, Sir Stephen. It's not the most popular cause. The polls show the public are against you. Where, what's your background? Just tell us a little about your career, because you know quite a lot about this. Well, I, I mean, I, as a teenager, I was inspired by the European idea. Professionally, I mean, I came to it in the 1980s as a foreign office official working for Margaret Thatcher when she was trying to, quote, get our money back and uh, feeling very strongly that there was indeed uh, a cause for doing that. I worked for John Major. I was with him at uh, Maastricht, the treaty that gave rise to the single currency. And then I had five years as Britain's ambassador to the European Union in Brussels, thinking not so much we're about to become a super state, but how fragile the relationships were between the countries of the European Union at that time. Right. Now, Sir Stephen, you wrote a book called A Stranger in Europe, Britain and the EU from Thatcher to Blair. I was looking at the reviews online. One of them called it an excellent, informative and balanced account of Britain's relationship with the European Union, a long overdue riposte to the scaremongering of little Englanders. Another one said, who needs democracy when we have superb mandarins like Stephen Wall to, thank, to think for us? Who needs sovereignty when the wonderful EU will do everything for us? I think it was probably being sarcastic there, um, Stephen, if I may say. <laughs> right, so Stephen Wall is going to be making the case for the motion, for the motion that we should stay within the EU. We have a panel here of different views leading the nays, uh, and I'm going to let them introduce themselves, and we'll start here. My name's Roger Helmer. Uh, I'm a member of the European Parliament representing the United Kingdom Independence Party and also representing the East Midlands, uh, although for many years I was a Conservative member of the European Parliament until I moved across uh, to UKIP. Um, the position I take uh, is that Britain would be better off out. Europe is an economic area in long-term relative economic... We don't want the arguments yet. Ah, the arguments sorry, yet. I thought we were introducing no, no, our no, point of view. No, no, just introducing, <laughs> you're, you're clarifying your position. So, so you're, 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 you're out, don't bother to renegotiate, just get out. Out. That's out. It. Okay, good. good, good. No, that's it. You've got plenty of time for the other bits. Uh, Helen. My name is Helen Samueli. Uh, I am not a politician. Um, I'm head of research at the Bruges Group, which is a think tank, and I'm also an independent blogger. My position on it is very simple. We should negotiate our way out tomorrow. Right. Um, Mark. 
I'm Mark Reckless. I'm the Conservative MP for Rochester and Strood. I was, for some years, UK economist for Warburgs and author of The Euro, Bad for Business. I'm now chairman of the campaign for an independent Britain, and I believe we'd be better off as an independent country trading with Europe but governing ourselves. And is there any difference between your position and Roger and Helen, uh, Mark? We will see as the debate proceeds. Uh, okay, okay. I wondered whether you, you might know that. Right, and finally, uh, our, our last and perhaps not quite so sceptical panel member. No, <coughs> that's right. I'm George Eustace. I'm a Member of Parliament for Camborne and Redruth. Um, my first job in politics about 12 years ago was working for the anti-euro uh, no campaign in the UK, which campaigned to stay in the European Union but not join the euro. Um, my view now is that we should stay in the European Union but under new terms. I do think that the European Union has been heading in the wrong direction over the last uh, decade or so, perhaps longer, and it's now time to take stock, given the crisis in the Eurozone, and renegotiate our position in Europe. And, and, and you're the Conservative MP for Campbell and, and Redruth, right. we yeah. should say, uh, George. And just to be absolutely clear, in the, in the event of a failure of a renegotiation, so you didn't get your way, you would... Well, I've been clear that um, I don't think the status quo of our relationship with the European Union is acceptable. So I would want to renegotiate that. What right. I favour is having a referendum at the end of that negotiation. Right. So and the how would you vote in that referendum? I don't want to take too long just well, finding out your uh, position. Well, if the government has got the right to renegotiation, I would vote to stay in. Uh, but that's, I think, the, right. the key and I'm, and I'm asking the question is what you would do in the event that you didn't get the renegotiation you want. Well, clearly, if you think that the status quo is not acceptable, then you would vote to come out. And right. that's what okay. I would do. That's it. That's it. And so I'm very clear on that. We got there. We got there. We got there. I think there is a very important point, though, which is that um, it would be wrong for Britain, if it's serious about getting a renegotiation, to go into that saying, um, you know, we're, we're actually going to leave here and we're threatening to leave. I think okay, there so are other things we could do along the way to achieve the result we want. But, but, but essentially, if it all goes, uh, it doesn't go the way you wanted eventually you would, you would rather come out. Okay, well look, we've divided the debate into two, politics and economics. Each half gives uh, Sir Stephen 90 seconds or so to set out his case unchallenged, and then we will essentially let the panel uh, rebut uh, and question and interact with Stephen over the argument. So, politics first, Sir Stephen. It's referendum day, and I'm at the polling booth, and I shall vote to stay in. Of course, I'm relieved that we, Britain, play a decisive part in the world's largest economic organization, 500 million people, both a market for us and a powerful means of exercising economic influence in the world. But for me, it's the politics that count. We all, all of us as member states, have strong national interests. And the European Union is, I believe, still the best means we have among 27 neighboring countries of managing those potentially conflicting interests so that they do not get dangerously out of hand. We have a framework of rules which mean that the biggest cannot bully the smallest, that we compete fairly, that brings those who misbehave back into line. Above all, to be a member of the European Union, you have to be a genuine democracy. So beyond our differences, there are value systems which unite us. We helped Spain and Portugal to achieve democratic stability after years of fascism. We did the same for Eastern Europe after half a century of communist dictatorship. And the unprecedented peace that we've enjoyed in Western Europe didn't happen by chance, and I do not believe that its continuation can be counted on through complacency. 
So in my view, the European Union is still the best vehicle we have for peaceful, prosperous stability, and I will vote to stay in for my safety's sake. So Stephen, thank you very much indeed. I want to go straight on to getting some comments about that. We've heard about democracy, uh, stability, decades of peace, and a, a, a union that stops the big bullying the smallest. Roger. Well, I'm impressed to hear that the union stops the biggest bullying the smallest. I shall go and tell them in Athens, and I'm sure they'll be, <laughs> they'll be deeply impressed. Um, in fact, of course, um, let's address this, this issue of influence. We're told that we join for influence. If we all agreed with each other on every issue, then perhaps we would have more influence together than we have apart. But there's example after example. I don't have time to go into them. But, for example, the, the Uruguay round negotiations where Peter Mandelson was forced to go for a more protectionist position than he would have liked to because, uh, in the end, we disagreed with what they were doing. But I really want to take up your point about peace. Peace in Europe has not been kept by the European Union. It's been kept by the Transatlantic Alliance, by NATO, by mutually assured destruction, by 100,000 American GIs uh, in Germany. Uh, and the Berlin Wall didn't come down because the Commission did something clever. It came down because of the courage and determination of people like Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan and possibly Pope John Paul. Well, I think, it, I mean, I think, I think frankly, I think, frankly, the Berlin Wall came down partly because of the uh, brave actions of the people of, uh, of uh, Germany and uh, the people of uh, countries of Eastern, uh, of Eastern Europe. But, of, Roger, of, course, of course, I agree with you about the uh, importance of, uh, of NATO, but this isn't just about uh, defence in that sense. It is about having stability. And I do not myself believe that without the prospect of joining the European Union, we could have counted on the transition of the countries of Eastern and Central Europe to the kind of democracy uh, we see today. Of course it isn't uh, perfect, but we do see the influence that the European Union members can bring to bear when things look like going wrong. For those countries that want to join, like Ukraine, we set a high standard that they have to attain before they can join. And I think that that, in terms of creating the circumstances, in which dangerous conflict, not necessarily war, but dangerous conflicts of interest uh, could take place, I think that that stability diminishes that risk enormously. So I just want to be clear. I can see a good reason for Spain having joined in Portugal and, the, and, 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 and Greece because they had uh, fascist dictators and they wanted to get, come round to democracy. Stephen, in what way does our continued membership of the EU, in what way does that promote democracy in Spain or Portugal or, or, or Athens? Or in Britain. Or in Britain, yes. It, in, my, in my view, it, we, are, we, cannot, we cannot divorce ourselves uh, from Europe. These are not faraway countries of which we know nothing. Uh, this, is the, this is the continent to which we belong. This is the water in which, uh, in which we swim. We can't we divorce have, ourselves from the rest of the world, but we don't want to be governed by it. <laughs> we are one of the largest member states. We have a powerful voice. We have a powerful say in the Council and, and in the European Parliament in terms of the laws that, uh, that, are, that are passed. And if you talk, about, you talk about the WTO, the fact is that the European Union was prepared to take a liberal trading position in the WTO negotiations. They didn't fail... Well, the because the, the WTO, okay, sorry, they sorry, didn't, sorry, sorry, they, didn't, they didn't fail because the WTO, uh, because the European Union was not taking uh, a sufficiently liberal position. They failed because of the position taken by some of our would-be trading I'd, partners. I'd like to move down the line. We've had a, an interchange on uh, on peace, Helen. 
Well, I'd like to take up fairly swiftly two points. One is that the, the business about all the countries in the European Union being democracies was one that came up first when the negotiations were about Britain joining, and that was the argument for the common market. All the, um, all the members are a democracy, to which the counter-argument was, yes, but the structure itself is not democratic. And that counter-argument still applies. At a time when, well, we can argue about it, but let's say between 70 and 80% of our legislation comes from the EU and Parliament has no right to throw it out. The, uh, the point that the actual structure by which this legislation regulation is done is not democratic is, I think, far more important than the fact that other member states are or may be democracies, okay, I wish I say. Well, if you, if, you want, if you want a pure democratic system, then you should have a federal system, which uh, successive governments of, uh, uh, of this country have turned their face uh, against. Short of that, you have a system in which the elected uh, members of parliament, who are members of governments, uh, serve on the Council of Ministers, and the Council of Ministers shares with the European Parliament, directly elected, uh, the power to make uh, legislation. Now, okay, you have other, institu you have other institutions, notably uh, the European <coughs> Commission, with the power to propose uh, legislation. In fact, but it's the only one that has the power yes, to propose and, legislation. And that, that I, I firmly believe that that unique construction accounts for the success of the European Union because it does mean that you've got a body, however flawed, and all institutions are flawed, which does have an interest of the European Union as a whole at, uh, at heart, rather than... If, if we were just... If you look at, if you look at intergovernmental organisations... But from Britain's point of view, if we are outvoted on the Council of Ministers, no matter, even if there have been numerous occasions on, say, the fisheries or the art market, I mean, I'm just quoting examples off the top of my head, in which all parties agreed on a certain... Um, a certain attitude and a sort, certain course of action. Outvoted on the Council of Ministers, outvoted in Parliament, doesn't matter what our own parties and our own members of Parliament, who were elected by our people, say. I mean, how is that a democracy? The history of international organisations that operate by consensus is largely one of, of, of powerlessness. The decision which the then British government under Margaret Thatcher took in 1986 to accept the most significant increase in the amount of majority voting decisions uh, so far seen in the history of the European Community, European Union, was taken because of the argument then made within the Conservative uh, government, notably by Malcolm Rifkind, who was the Europe Minister, was we have to decide. Do we want simply to block everything, or do we want certain things to happen? If we want certain things to happen, then we have to take a risk that sometimes we will be outvoted, but on the belief that on a majority of occasions, as has actually been the case, we will be on the side of those voting through the legislation that but, is but, in the but, British but, national interest. Uh, with respect, I think Helen's point is slightly different, which is we could all vote in this room that we're going to paint our bedrooms blue. Um, and we could have a majority in a very democratic system within the room that it's blue is the preferred colour to paint our bedrooms. But isn't Helen's point, there's really no need for us all to paint our bedrooms blue. We can each choose what colour we paint our own bedroom. But there is and there that, that, that inextricably, by going into this and saying we're not going to block the blue decision, the blue bedroom decision, we're just, we're just constraining ourselves in some way. Well, as I say... Is in, that in, a fair in, summary in, of your the, point? The, 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 these are not decisions which are imposed on us. We are part of the negotiating process that leads but to the, that leads to the decisions being taken. They are imposed on once, us. Yes. That, that, is, that, that, is, wouldn't that be, is the that's point. That's if we had our own government, which would involve having treaties on various matters with other European countries, then it would be our government elected 
by the people of this country who would be deciding these matters, not the governments of other countries. And that's that's the, Stephen, that, do, you, do you agree with that? Just as a factual point, you must agree with that. We would be able to make certain decisions ourselves that we would not, be, have, to, we would not have to agree over things. We would be able to just do what we it depends with It depends what view you take of sovereignty. I take, I take a view of sovereignty, which is I want to be empowered to do the things which will benefit the interests of, 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 uh, of. of Britain. Now, the fact of the matter is that the nature of the institutional arrangements which Helen has just described were exhaustively discussed in Parliament back in 1972 uh, before we joined. They were subsequently debated in the referendum in 1975, uh, which was held by Harold Wilson, and where the British people voted uh, by two-thirds to stay in, and no doubt they'll be uh, debated again if we have another referendum uh, in a year but or two's on time. That basis, one could say four times the Conservative government was elected. Why have any more elections? I think we've, we've dealt with that point. So it, there's, a, there's a disagreement about what the nature of sovereignty and independent decision-making is. Mark Reckless. So Stephen, we had a, a referendum in, in 1975, but no one in this country under the age of 55 has had an opportunity to vote. Now, you, you talk about the EU as democ all about democracy, but if you, if you look at it, it is an elite project because Monet, Schumann, the founding fathers knew that if they were honest about that, what they wanted, the people wouldn't vote for it. And every time it does go to a vote, whether in Denmark, France, the Netherlands, Ireland, twice and that result goes the wrong way, it's ignored. If you look at, I mean, I, I, I mean there have been, as, as you say, different results on different, on different uh, referendums, but if you look at uh, opinion polls, public opinion polls, in the majority of member states, there is still a majority among public opinion which is in favour of continued uh, membership of the European Union, and interestingly, for those who are in the Euro, of remaining within the, uh, the Eurozone. I'm not against, I'm not against... Uh, uh, public opinion having the right to give a view in this country or uh, or, or anywhere else. I think the, the you know it is 37 years since uh, since the last uh, since the last referendum. And one of the things then that British people have to take a view on is indeed the nature of this organisation, which in treaty terms is different from other international treaties. Is that in the view of the British people? more in our interest than having an institution, an organisation like the United Nations, where things have to take be done have to be done by consensus, in which case I would argue that you would see paralysis and the ability of the European Union to exercise its influence in the world, not just in the matters that we've talked about, but as the largest uh, aid donor in the world. And again, if we, f if we want peace and stability, it must make sense to have more people around the world who are out of poverty than who are uh, in it, not least on the whole question of emigration, which is a vexed issue uh, in, uh, in, most, uh, in most countries, and also in terms of the peacekeeping role that the EU exercises throughout the world, often below the radar, but it's trying to do stuff to deal with piracy in Somalia, it's trying to do stuff rather successfully uh, in Burma, it's trying to help uh, Turkey and Jordan now uh, in the Syrian crisis, and so on and so forth. So, 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 it's about piracy in Somalia, it's about getting the world out of poverty, but sort of ultimately, surely it should be the British people that decide. And in our country, the, the most recent opinion poll showed that 48% 48 wanted uh, to leave, 31% only wanted to stay in, and the rest didn't know. But almost every opinion poll taken in this country shows a majority who want to come out 
of the EU. Right, Surely they should be allowed that choice. But and Mark, Mandarin, you're not making, it doesn't sound to me like you're making a statement relevant to the debate of whether we ought to be in or out. You're just saying we ought to have no, a no, choice, which is I, a different question. No, what I would say is it's been an elite project. And right. Sir Stephen, who's made his career in the EU, and now Sir John Cunliffe, who has his position, they do deals in, you know, not, not, in not in public. And what we need charge, to do is give you, an, give you an incentive to actually negotiate a deal that might be in our interest because you know, ultimately, it's going to a referendum. You could argue that any project is an elite project insofar as gov you know, governments come forward with uh, proposals which they then have to get through Parliament. But the fact is, a Conservative government secured the consent of Parliament for our joining. Margaret Thatcher subsequently secured the consent of Parliament for the Single European Act, which was the biggest extension of majority voting, as I've, uh, as I've mentioned. But the British people in 1975 uh, decided through a referendum that they, uh, uh, that they wished to, uh, to remain in. And as for these things being you know, done in, you know, in, 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 in in rooms in secret. Um, people like me don't just kind of go into a room and say, well, I think this is what we'll negotiate. We are under instruction from ministers. We are under instruction from politicians who have to go to Parliament and say this is our policy, defend it in Parliament and ultimately secure a majority in Parliament to sustain it. Good. George Eustace. Well, I think it would be churlish to deny that the you know, European Union has had some achievements and has achieved some things. And I would agree with Sir Stephen that, for instance, I think it played a part in... in uh, helping be a bulwark in the, in the Cold War against the Soviet Union. And I think after the Berlin Wall came down, actually the European Union has played an important role bringing those European, uh, East European countries into, um, into a sort of free trade area. So I think it's achieved some things. But there have undoubtedly been political costs as well. And there's no getting away from the fact uh, that the EU has undermined democracy. And I think the most important thing is that you know, the euro was a disastrous mistake. Euro took a serious wrong turn uh, 12 years ago when it introduced the euro. Um, we now have, I think, a, a real problem and, and a threat to the stability of the European Union. That's why we need to think afresh about this. And I think that the dogma of ever closer union, this idea that you keep giving more and more power to the EU is what's wrong with the European Union, we need to reverse that. And what should have happened when the EU enlarged and brought on board those East European countries is actually it should have started doing less things and doing a few things better and focusing on the things where it could add value. Instead, it's continued to try to integrate and accumulate ever more powers. It's become harder and harder to get agreement. And the result is that it's had no option but to undermine democracy, in some cases, literally throwing out democratically elected governments in the Eurozone. Um, yes, Stephen, I just, I, I'm glad George raised that, because when you said it promotes stability, it doesn't always look like that at the moment. Well, this, 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 the situation in the, uh, in the Eurozone is certainly not a, not a stable uh, situation. Uh, but in a sense, this comes to the, to, to the heart of my uh, argument. As I mentioned at the beginning, I, I, sat, I sat in Brussels for five years negotiating day in, day out with the other member states of the European Union. And the thing that constantly was in my mind was not that this is about to become a single state called Europe, but actually here we are, 15 at the time, ferociously nationalistic countries, all fighting our corner. And if we didn't have some mechanism of managing that to prevent it getting out of hand, it could very easily get out of hand. And I'm not talking about war, but take, for example, uh, what happened a few years ago when the French refused to accept uh, imports of British beef. You then have the European Commission taking the French to the European Court, and the European Court threatening to fine the French, and eventually the French 
uh, came back into line. You have to have mechanisms, short of tit-for-tat uh, between individual countries, to manage those relationships. I think particularly when it comes to the single market, absolutely, you must have everybody signing up to that because everyone benefits from it. But this constant accumulation of power by the EU has been a mistake, and I, I do think it's a serious issue uh, that we have at the moment where we, we are effectively getting to the stage uh, where the euro and democratic government are incompatible with one another. That's not a good place to be. We should not have introduced the euro. We should have spent the last decade focusing on developing the single market and making that a success. And, and we've got to, I think, atone for the mistakes that the previous generation of politicians made. We've got to undo some of these mistakes, start rowing back power so that we can protect the future of the European Union, give it a valid reason for existing in the 21st century but actually have it doing far less than it's doing well, today. For a country that's purportedly being forced to do things against its, uh, its will, the then British Prime Minister John Major negotiated a deal at Maastricht whereby if we want to join the single currency, we can at any time, and we would not have to uh, accept uh, uh, disadvantageous terms to do so. Equally, if we want, as we at present do, uh, to remain outside, then we're completely at liberty uh, to do that also. With, with respect, I just say, I think people like you at the time are arguing that we should have joined the euro because you would lose influence, lose, lose a seat at the table. You were wrong then, and I think you're wrong now. And what we, what we actually need to do is really face up to this argument and recognise that there are times when it is better to have absolute control over a policy area, such as monetary policy, far better than that than to have a seat at the table with 27 other people squabbling who can't agree. Well, we, that... That, that, that control we do have, but if you, if you want to uh, maintain uh, the benefits of uh, the single market that we have, of the market of 500 million, then there have to be uh, an agreed set of rules. And those, those, we're going those to come, I want to, I want okay. to break in there, because we're going to come to this whole okay. issue of the single market in the second half, so I don't want us to stray too far into that, but I think you've, you've, you've made your point uh, very, very clearly, George, that you think they moved too far on too many issues, integrated too deeply. Stephen, do you at least concede that they must regret doing that and giving the European Union a kick by trying to renegotiate with a threat of exit would perhaps be a way of rebalancing it and re reducing its scope to something more realistic. Well, you, again, you, 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 have, you have to decide where you think your uh, interests lie. If you think that overall, as I do, that your interest remains in being in the European Union for all the reasons I've given, plus the economic ones that we will uh, come on to, and if you recognise that any attempt to renegotiate the terms has got to be acceptable to the other uh, member states, then you have to be realistic about what you want. Part of our problem in Britain is that we treat every issue as if it is a vital uh, national interest, uh, where actually what you have to do is prioritise what your interests are. And of course, we are not without uh, power and influence. We have, Margaret Thatcher largely helped create uh, the single market, one of the prime reasons behind the original uh, Treaty of Rome. We have helped reform the common agricultural policy. We have helped achieve more liberal external trading policies in the, in the, uh, in the European Union. Of course, there are things that we can achieve, but a sensible position would be, let, let us take, let's take a good example, uh, at the risk of, of coming on to economics. We, we want to improve access for services, a huge part of our export business within the, within the European uh, Union. 
There is potentially a deal to be done to achieve greater liberalization of services generally, but we're not going to achieve that unless we're prepared to have some negotiation about banking regulation. I, I think we've got to get away from this idea that it's an all or nothing when it comes to the European Union. You know, there's already quite an element of, of pick and mix about it. We've got 27, soon to be 28 member states, um, only 17 of them are in the euro, and, uh, and 11 of them are not. We've got countries that are not in the Schengen Agreement. Um, we've got countries like uh, Denmark, who refused to accept the authority of the European Court of Justice in uh, areas such as justice and home affairs. So there are already uh, quite a bit of flexibility. What I'm saying is that's the right principle, that principle of subsidiarity and flexibility in the EU. We should be expanding and building on that, not constantly undermining it with this argument that we have to have a seat at the table every time. I'm interested in whether the rest of the panel agree with George that there's a pick and mix. You can pick and mix a little bit. What about you, Helen? doesn't actually work. I mean, you know, there is the odd occasion when here and there we pick and something gets picked. But in actual fact, if we were a genuinely sovereign country, i.e. made legislation for ourselves, which is possibly the best um, definition of sovereignty, um, and had agreements in various ways with other European countries and with the rest of the world, then probably it then... Yes, actually not probably. Certainly, that would actually be to our greater advantage. As it is, I mean, people talk about having a referendum. I'm just going back to this question of democracy, which is overruling our democracy. If we have a referendum and we vote no, and we want to vote that we want to come out, are we going to have to have another referendum like other countries have done? I mean, this is, this is what the EU democracy consists of. You ask the people, the people vote the wrong way. No, I'm, I'm asking, my question was much narrower, though. That it, would an alternative to coming out be just to pick and mix and take some things. I mean, would that, would that, would that alleviate your desire to come out if we could, for example, have this and have that, not have but this actually, and not have we, that? We, but I, I'm getting the impression you don't want to. You'd just well, rather we, come we, out. Well, we actually couldn't because mm. we've tried to do that with fisheries. We've tried to do it with this. It never works. We get taken right. to the court. It, it. Works, it, it works in circumstances where you've got leverage. Margaret Thatcher could secure getting back two-thirds of our contribution yeah. because but the budget of the not, European Union... Okay, just going to pause for a moment. We've just got a microphone job to do on Helen, actually. Sorry about that. Just, uh, Helen, the, the, as, the, as I was as asking a specific question, which is, right. would, would it be an alternative to leaving to just pick and mix? Is that a viable alternative? This is actually not viable. I mean, those treaties exist as they exist, and the single market... I mean, so Stephen says himself, the whole point of the single market, we have this set of rules and they are imposed on everybody. Therefore, this idea that we can pick and mix those rules is just not viable. Okay, Roger. Uh, well, I agree with that point of view. What I would like to see from the European Union or with Europe is a free trade area. But the fundamental thing about the European Union is that it's a customs union, not a free trade area. So there's nothing left to pick from my point of view. And I believe that we should first leave and then negotiate a free trade agreement with Europe. Okay, sorry, Stephen. I'm going I'm I'm to open up. We've had, we've had a lot of you, Stephen. Yeah. I'm actually I'm just, right. sorry to say. I'm going to take a few questions from the floor. Now, we have microphones floating around and I'm going to take the gentleman right in the middle back here yes and the third row with the dark glasses hanging on his shirt I should say not wearing them just tell us who you are and uh, yeah uh, from the Freedom Association which is a uh, cross-party uh, pressure group and uh, my, my question is in terms of it's talking about a lot of what Thatcher did and what Thatcher and obviously Sir Stephen you were there at the uh, negotiating table uh, but to quote Liam Fox what we've been sold is a pup and now it seems to be a beast now the European Union seems to have 
come under or increased its powers in a whole range of factors, whether it be economic or political. And is this um, an argument for coming out? I, I, I yes, want to make the point. It is an argument right. for coming out. But that the, sounds like a description, a historical description. I don't well, know. no, it seems that the European Union is now a beast rather than what we originally sold. And democratically, with the majority of in, uh, individuals in the UK wanting to come out, surely there's a case for putting this particular question to the people of Britain. Right. But you're, you would, you're just making a case for a referendum, which is a, a different issue about whether you What I'm interested in is whether you want to come out or go in when we have the referendum, which is a... Right. But you well, want to come out, really, aren't, don't you, I think? I, I do yeah. want to right. come out. Okay. Um, let's take another couple of comments. We've got... Uh, have we got a microphone at the top as well? Can I just check? Yeah, we have. Um, we'll take the gentleman just down there, just in front of you. Yeah, the hand up. That's it. That's it. Yes, you. Yep. That's it. Great stuff. Yep. And then we'll take the chap at the back here in the black shirt. The black shirt. Back. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, I'll declare straight away I'm absolutely for staying in. But at the same time, I actually believe I'm going to be in a very minority. I actually believe we should join the euro at a, at a given moment. <laughs> I know. Uh, right, no, uh, but but the, re, the, ra, the rationale behind that is... The, the, ra, the rationale behind that is if we look ahead instead of looking back... And we actually look at the, if the euro survives, I've not seen a currency in the last hundred years that would have had such stress, stress test as that has. So I would suggest to you that we should look forward a little more than looking back. That's an interesting perspective. <laughs> um, the gentleman in the back, the black, black shirt over there. Surely the central point that Sir Stephen made is absolutely incontestable that the EEC and now the EU has contributed significantly towards keeping peace in Europe. Between 1870 and 1945, France and Germany were at war three times. In the similar length of period since, all we've seen are French presidents and German chancellors working extremely closely and constructively together to, to contributing towards the prosperity of Europe. An incontestable point. Roger, do you want to come back at that? Well, I, I, I certainly do. Uh, as William Hague famously said, the European Union is a 1970s solution to a 1950s problem. Now, there is in Europe an enormous amount of cross-border activity, trade, and all those things, and there would have been without the European Union. There would have been with a free trade area. If we wanted to start a war and create a bomber, we'd have to get... The, the engines from Derby on my patch, we'd have to get the, the fuselage put together in Toulouse. You can't do it anymore. Business and, and uh, uh, armaments manufacture and so on are distributed right across Europe. You couldn't do it. It was a problem in the mid-20th century. It is not a problem now, and it do certainly doesn't need an anti-democratic solution. Okay, so clearly it is contestable, and it is contested. Uh, gentleman at the, um, the back with his hand up there against the wall at the back, yep. Hi, uh, my name's Michael Climes. I'm a journalist, and I work for Gigi Press, the uh, Japanese news agency. Um, uh, I guess my sort of questions are twofold. Um, first of all, have any of you read uh, or had a chance to explore David Owen's uh, new book, Europe um, uh, Restructured? And what do you think about his suggestion of having a two-tier Europe um, maintaining the single market as it is, but pushing forward with like the core 17 
uh, Eurozone countries and going for further um, integration. Um, and the second question, I think, and I think the deep one is that even um, members of... Sorry, sorry can, I, can we take just the one, actually? Because I, I think it's going to work much better for our purposes if we, um, if we take the question. It's a very good question, so I, 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 it's just going to get complicated if we have to. Um, so the... I'm glad you raised that, because in a way, maybe this in-out is just a little bit too binary. Maybe with the changing developments in the EU, in which you're going to have a more integrated, potentially, Eurozone, uh, EU layer around that, a European economic area around that. I wonder whether... Have we framed this debate incorrectly, Sir Stephen? Well, just to take uh, uh, Lord Owen's argument, first of all, he's uh, rem removing or certainly diminishing uh, the role of the institutions, namely the Commission, in terms of proposals for uh, policy. So what do you have? Do you have a kind of free-for-all uh, among the uh, member states? Secondly, he wants basically to repatriate what are now uh, European competencies in a whole area, including in areas including industrial policy and uh, agriculture. And those, frankly, uh, are unnegotiable. Uh, and if you set yourself... if What he wants to have is an empowering referendum. In other words, the government of the day go to the country and say, please empower us in a referendum to negotiate the following things. When you failed to negotiate those things, because if you take any of those subjects, there will simply not be enough other member states to support our position. What do you then say to the British people? Do you say, we failed and don't worry about it? Or do you, you ask say, George. Or George do you gave say, us an answer. Or do you, you say, we failed uh, and therefore uh, we leave? So you have, you have to decide where your fundamental interests lie and then decide where you can find some friends and allies to make the changes you want to, you want to Ma make. Ma Mark Reckless wants to disagree. Hmm. And the problem about this is that the European Union is based on the concept of the acquis communautaire. Basically, once the EU has done something in any field, that is forever an area of EU control. And all we see is power going in an ever closer union towards the European institutions, and power is never returned to the member states. Then if you, if you have an international uh, organisation of the, of the kind that the European Union is, inevitably, once you have taken decisions to act together in a certain area, then quite self-evidently, you can't have individual members doing something which is different from that which uh, all have agreed. Now, the fact is, if we want to make those changes, then we have to uh, persuade our partners to make them. Or we use uh, a negotiating leverage where we have it, as we do when treaty changes are being uh, discussed, to secure certain things that we want. John Major, for example, uh, secured uh, the privileged position for Britain in terms of immigration rules at the time of the, uh, uh, at the, time of the Maastricht Treaty. Right. Sorry, I, 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 very quick one from George, then one more question. I disagree with this defeatism coming from, from both sides, if I might say so. You know, we, we have to face the fact that Europe is now in a, in a real crisis. This is an opportunity to remodel it and sort it out. And I think David Owen's absolutely right. There's an opportunity here to perhaps even bind Norway, Turkey, other countries like that closer to the UK within an outer tier within the European Union in a way that benefits them and benefits the EU and actually frankly also gives a line of retreat for countries that might decide to exit the euro and join that outer tier. We just have to get over this point. You know, where there's a political will there's a way and all this rubbish about treaties if you decide something politically you bring the lawyers in you give them their marching orders and they'll sort the treaties right. out. The outer, but the outer, the, outer, the, outer, the, outer, the outer tier the outer tier existed before we joined the European Union we were, we were, we were part of it and it was unsatisfactory because it was too 
too weak, both economically and, and politically. This is a thing called the European Free Trade this Association. Exactly. Talking about a different type of He is basically talking about taking Britain out of what is now the mainstream of uh, the European Union, and I believe in terms of loss of influence, loss of influence both within Europe and beyond Europe, that would be damaging to British interests. Well, what's interesting is that actually you disagree with George on that, and I think, Helen, you disagree with George as well, don't you? I was just going to say that the four of us agree on this matter, that this cannot be done. Um, George is the only one who seems to think that somehow or other the treaties can be taken apart and we can put them all together again and get 27 as of next year, 28 countries agree. We, the four of us all agree this cannot actually be done because the treaties are structured. The difference is that Sir Stephen takes this slightly defeatist view that, well, it can't be done, we may as well go along with it. And the rest of us think, well, it can't be done, therefore let's look to the future and have a completely different relationship. So you're in fact... Do appear apart from George to be accepting the rather binary nature of the, uh, the debate that we framed. Roger, quick comment. Can I just add a quick point on that. I wouldn't argue that renegotiation was necessarily impossible, but you'd want a government with massive determination and self confidence, and absolutely you'd have to back it up with a threat of leaving. And of course, our Prime Minister has just declared that he will never campaign to leave, so he's given away the only negotiating card that might have affected a renegotiation. Well, he's, probably, he's, probably, he's probably wisely calculated that it's not that much of a negotiating card. If you want... <laughs> um, we're going to take... I'm going to take one more from the floor. I'm going to take just one more from the floor. There's a gentleman in a white shirt right in the middle of that row there. He's looking very enthusiastic. So I... I yeah, just pass it down the line to him. He's also got dark glasses hanging in his shirt. So, yep. I'm a student here at the LSE, and I was wondering whether the, parallel, uh, whether the panel sees a parallel between the possibility of British interests being outvoted uh, by the rest of Europe and uh, uh, Scottish interests being outvoted by the rest of the UK. And more, more <laughs> <laughs> Tell us where you're from. Where are you and, and from? More generally about the, uh, the whole democratic deficit issue, how the panel feels about the, um, the House of Lords and about the fact that, for instance, uh, in 2005, Tony Blair was re-elected into office by uh, just 35%. Right. So Thank tell you. us, where, where are you from yourself? Where, are you, where do you hail from yourself? Sorry? Where, where do you come from yourself? Uh, I'm German. You're German. <laughs> I'm sorry, sorry. I'm European. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, it's a fair question, and I'm going to let Roger... I, I think yeah. you, must, you must accept that, yeah. it, you, you, the argument for Scottish independence it's, it's, in UK. It's a very good question. Congratulations, sir. And it brings up the vital point that there is more about democracy than just counting votes. Counting votes is purely arithmetic. Underlying a democracy, you must have Greek word demos. You must have a people who broadly consent to be governed together. Now, it's a question for the, for the Brits and the Scots whether they broadly agree to be governed together, and they're going to debate that issue. But it is absolutely clear that no such demos exists in Europe where we have different cultural traditions, speak different languages, and therefore the common public opinion necessary for representative democratic government simply cannot exist. So thank you for asking the question. But I think it, it makes my point. It's very interesting. You, I mean, uh, your, 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 your 
in a way, welcoming of the debate that Scotland is having about the United Kingdom uh, in the way that you would welcome Britain yes, having I, a debate I, about I have a view on it, but I believe that both right. the Brits and the Scots and... Uh, the Brits and the, Sco the Scots well, are the, Brits, the, but the, you mean the Scottish and the rest insist, of the Brits. Yeah. If you insist, the English, the Welsh and the Northern yeah, yeah, Irish. The other, the other Brits. The yeah. others, yes. Right. Okay, we've had enough questions. Right, we've had a good deal... Um, of argument on politics. We've talked about influence, we've talked about peace, uh, we've talked about democracy and whether uh, we all need to share these decisions in the first place. Um, but of course, the big action at the moment is in the subject of economics. At its narrowest, there's the issue of what we pay into the EU. At its broadest, it's about who we trade with, how we pay our way in the world. So what, against the background of everything that's going on, is the economic case for staying in? Let's have the second half now. Stephen, you lead us off. Well, as we've already said, we have, we have a market of 500 million people, the world's biggest uh, economy. It is a customs union. We can freely export our goods within it, and we do so to the tune from Britain of £100 billion pounds worth uh, each year. We play a major part in deciding the rules, and access to that single market has helped make us one of the most attractive places for inward investment, and the European Union accounts for well over half of the UK's overseas uh, investment. The European Union uses its combined influence to secure trade deals bilaterally with other countries and through the World Trade Organization. And we can stand up to would-be protectionist action against us, for example, the kind of action that the United States wanted to take against uh, our steel exports a few years ago, uh, and against others with similar protectionist intent. Outside, we would immediately face tariff barriers, 10% on cars, so you have to ask yourself, would Honda or Nissan or BMW, who make Land Rovers and Jaguars, would they find it economical to continue to base their production here? Of course, it's been mentioned, we could have a deal uh, like Norway, but Norway pays for the privilege of access to the single uh, market legislation over which they have no say uh, whatsoever. So they have the privilege of access to the single market, but they make none of the rules uh, which govern it, and they have to implement whatever the 26, and we would have to implement whatever the 26 without us uh, would decide, including implementing the social legislation which some in this country so dislike. Or we could have a Swiss model with no participation in decisions or protection against new trade barriers and no access to the EU financial services uh, market. So we would give up our representation, our votes and our influence for a deal which would allow us in much less favourable conditions than now to obey rules decided by 26 other countries. In my view, that is not a deal uh, that a British government should want to accept. Thank you very much. I, it's amazing you didn't mention the euro at all in that, which is obviously... <laughs> well, I only had 90 seconds. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so essentially, the, we can have a life in the EU quite separate from the eurozone. Well, you cannot... Uh, detach the two insofar as the future stability of the European Union does depend crucially on what happens in the Eurozone, and none of us can predict uh, which way that will go. My, arg my argument is, however, that let, let, let us take possibly not the most likely scenario, but let us assume for the sake of argument that the Eurozone countries succeeded in establishing the kind of economic and political union that they're talking about in the measures they've, uh, they've taken uh, so far, then clearly there is an issue for Britain in those circumstances because they would 
have an interest in doing whatever was necessary for the protection of the Eurozone countries. But there is a, there is a negotiation to be had and a debate to be had uh, to, I believe, to allow a degree of banking regulation of the kind that uh, they want in exchange for a deal that would enhance our services access to the Eurozone and the rest of the European Union, uh, which is now uh, imperfect. All right. I'm going to unleash Mark Reckless on you, first of all. Mm. Mark. Uh, so, Stephen, first you, you asked whether BMW would continue to own Land Rover and uh, Jaguar to export to the EU if we were outside. Uh, own Land Rover. Yes, no, it, it, indeed, and, and most of the exports go outside the EU. And the, you know, the car industry is not a bad example because, you know, for the first time last year, we actually had a surplus in car exports, but that consists of a very large deficit with the EU made up by a larger surplus externally. And what you talk about is influence. But you're saying you know, influence over the rules of the market to which we export only a minority and a declining share of our exports. But in return for that, we have to apply those same rules to our larger exports outside and to the far larger domestic economy. Surely we should just obey their rules rather than have an 8% say, just as we do when we export to Australia or the United States, in return for making our own decisions nationally in a democratic way and regulating and making rules for our economy in a way that makes economic sense for us. Well, there are two things there. Are two things there. The, fir the first is that about half our, our trade in, in, in goods, half our exports in goods go to uh, the European Union. And the second is that 40% uh, of our exports of services go to the European Union compared with about 20% uh, which go to the uh, United States. You start from a premise that these, that these rules are somehow imposed on us with us having no say uh, in them. Um, the reason I keep coming back to Single European Act is because it was, it was a British government led by one of the most ferociously patriotic prime ministers Sorry, in I our history. I do, I'm going to stop because I want you to answer Mark's question. Mark Reckless's question was, would it not be better if we had our own ability to govern our own rules for our exports to countries like China or Brazil, for example, rather than having to obey... No, European rules no. to do that. Um, well, I, I, mean, I come back to Margaret. First of all, because I don't accept the premise that these, that these rules are against our interests. Margaret Thatcher wouldn't have accepted uh, to do it that way if that had been uh, uh, her view. And the record shows that actually we've won far more of the arguments and the legislation than lost within the uh, European Union. Secondly, I don't regard a 10% tariff barrier on cars or a 3% uh, tariff barrier overall as insignificant. These things are very significant. Right. And I think in terms of opening up world markets, what happens? if you have a World Trade Organization uh, gathering. You've got uh, the BRICS countries, Brazil and so on, going along uh, and arguing their corner. You've got the Canadians and Australians arguing theirs. You've got the United States arguing theirs. You've got the European Union. And then you've got Britain. Uh, how, much, how, much, how much say would we have in those circumstances? Well, the answer is very little. We seem to have an almost uniquely pro-European audience in this hall, but may I just say that we are the second... Maybe, maybe it's the force of my argument. We are, the, <laughs> we are the second largest services exporter in the world. And so, Stephen, as you, you were saying, there is very little trade of services within the EU, and it hasn't been a priority. And still more, it hasn't been a priority when the EU negotiates external trade deals. And if we were able to set our own policy, we could use our market here 
which we'd be able to either trade freely or to negotiate access to when it was no longer controlled by the EU, to open up external markets for our services that we can't when we were in the EU. Take, take, take Singapore, for instance, the free trade deal trying to negotiate there. It's mainly about sort of, yeah, rules of, rules of what you can call whether it's selling champagne or not. The key for us is, for, is trying to get access for our services to external markets with the EU stopping us doing. We're fighting in China with one arm tied behind our back because all our exports we try and make to China, we had to do on the basis of EU social rules, the EU 48-hour working week, EU health and safety. Why can't we just do those so they're Chinese rules only and allow people to sell whatever they want to the rest of the world and within our own domestic economy without the European Union making those rules for us? Well, I'm glad, I'm glad Mark, that I've got my civil service uh, pension because the idea of working in the marketplace with Chinese uh, rules, uh, thanks but no thanks. You know, I, come back I to don't the point. think Mark meant Chinese rules prevailing here. Yeah, he meant rules unique to our trade with China prevailing. No, but there is, there, is a, there is kind of an, an, an assumption that social legislation from, from Europe uh, is uh, a bad thing. Just as the, we had the, the argument that regulation of the banking sector on a European level is a bad thing. I listened for five years uh, in Brussels to the then head of the Financial Services Agency telling me uh, how the UK liberal model for banking regulation was the right way to go, and we see the result of that. So let's uh, just go, let's, get, let's be clear. Let's just, just on, just on, on, on no, social, on social but on social legislation. Would, would you want to be an agency worker with no parental leave rights, no holiday rights, no pension rights? That was the British law before the European uh, Union legislated. Mark, Mark yeah. But surely, surely, Sir Stephen, wherever you stand on that, the issue should be one for democratic decision. And if people in this country want certain laws, surely they should be able to elect members of parliament who can pass those laws and kick those MPs out if they don't like it. It should be democratic. Mark, Mark Reckless, that point is well made. But I want to ask you a question. If we abandon the social regulation that you don't like, we would not have the same access to the European market that we currently do. What we can't have is we pick and mix, we trade into Europe, but we abandon all the rules that Europe sets yep. for trade. Yeah. You agree with that? The, the worst case scenario is that we compete on WTO, World Trade Organization rules, and we have to pay the common external tariff, which is about 4% now for the EU. We export about 130 billion odd per year of goods there, so that would cost about five or six billion pounds. It is a fraction of just what we pay into the EU budget. Okay. So, well, it's not a fraction. That's a very good fraction of what we pay into the EU budget. It's a, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a very large fraction. But, but we Would you agree with that basic... That basic premise, Stephen. I just want to be quite clear about this, that we could, worst case, export to the EU with our own regulatory system on WTO rules with a small tariff on what we, go with, what we export to well, the EU. It, uh, it comes back to the point whether those who are doing the exporting would actually regard that as uh, simply a, a, a competitive hit that we, could, uh, that we could take. I think in present economic circumstances, 3% or 10% on cars is actually right. quite significant. And and it, it, would certainly, it would certainly affect inward investment decisions that's the, by that's those the next wanting to come reckless. Up. But it needn't inward investment, because actually, just by not contributing to the EU budget, we could pay all those tariffs for anyone who wants to export from our country to the EU and have 10 billion left over and make our own rules for employment and social legislation, get out of the CAP, have cheap food, cheap cars from elsewhere in the world, and once again be a democracy. Will you make the <clears throat> I'd, like to draw that, I'd like to draw that thread to a close. I think we both know, we know where you both stand. Right. Someone said, said in my ear, enough Mark. So I'm going to, uh, <laughs> I'm going to move, I'm going to move down the, I'm going to move down the line. Um, 
Helen. In a way, actually, it is picking up the same points, though. The assumption that this is all just about trade, I thought this, this section was about economics. Economics is a great deal more about trade. It involves the common agricultural policy, which is definitely not in our favour, the common fisheries policy, which is anything but in our favour, and that is a, has been a complete disaster for everybody else, and a number of other things. The point about the single market, and this has, cannot be emphasised strongly enough. It's not just about trade. It is about regulations that come in. I mean, anybody who has ever seen the list of regulations every day, it is huge. And it applies to the entire eco economy of this country, not just the 8% of it that trades with the uh, other European countries. It applies to all of it. It is actually and it's no good saying, well, we have some say in it, because, in fact, the way the regulations come through, very few people, apart from EU um, officials, have a say in it. But even when there is a debate, we are easily outvoted on matters that, ma that, that are important to us, such as the financial sector, and it comes in. That's it. Whether we actually trade with the European Union on, on, on these matters or not. Quick, quick retort. Well, in, in, take financial services. At a time when, at a time when financial services uh, legislation was first being mooted in, in Brussels, we had, a, through the city and more generally, a huge amount of influence on the shape of that legislation. But you have to be prepared to engage, get in uh, at the very beginning, and you can then shape it. I mean, I agree that the common agricultural policy, shaped by France uh, when we had decided uh, not to join, it then took 90% of the budget. It's now below 40%. But we shouldn't kid ourselves that we were out, if we were outside the European Union, we would have no agricultural policy. I can't believe that any British government, for example, wouldn't be subsidising hill farmers in the north of England, in Wales, in Scotland, uh, and, in, and in Northern Ireland. The basis of the, mo of the modern common agricultural policy is sustainable agriculture. It's not the uh, production subsidies that it was when we first joined, and which we have succeeded in changing. Okay, I want to have Roger now. I must come back on this. Yes, so Stephen is telling us about agency workers and whether they're happier now. I can tell you, I followed that on the Unemployment Committee in the European Parliament. I saw a Labour minister pleading with Brussels apparatchiks for Britain to be let off that regulation. Would agency workers be happier under the old system? Yes, because under the old system, something like 50% of them got back into full-time jobs through having done agency work. Today, they're likely not to get an agency job at all because agency jobs have become much scarcer. Can I come back to the question of the costs of membership? Uh, let me quote two ex-commissioners. Commissioner Verheugen estimated the cost of European regulation at around 5.5% of GDP. Peter Mandelson, our own uh, trade commissioner, estimated the benefits of the single market to this country at 1.8% of GDP. So the costs exceed the benefits by a factor of three, and that's before we've taken the direct budget contributions and so on and so on. Can we dismiss the cars 10%? Do we really imagine that with the number of Mercedes and Audis and BMWs that we import in this country from Europe, we would not reach a free trade deal on cars? Of course we would. But the real point I want to challenge to Stephen on. He does something that Europhiles always do. He says, well, we could be like Norway or we could be like Switzerland. Stephen, we are one of the top 10 countries by GDP, top five countries in the world by trade, and yet you, you compare us to two small countries under the thumb of Brussels. Please, compare us to America, compare us to Japan, <laughs> compare us to Korea. No, 
great independent nations. I worked for, for four years in Korea. Korea now has a free trade agreement with the European Union. If we left the European Union, as I'm sure we will sooner or later, we too would have a free trade agreement. We would get most of the benefits of access to the single market while we would avoid virtually all of the costs. And that is why I believe in economic terms we would be better off out. I do not believe that if we were negotiating, uh, as Norway did, uh, that we would succeed in persuading 26 other member states that we should have that access without paying a price, uh, as Norway does, and if you prorata that price, you're probably talking of somewhere between 2 billion and 4 billion in terms of, a, of cash for the privilege of access to the single market. I come back to the point, regardless of the access, we would have absolutely no say in any of the legislation that was passed. We would be, uh, we would be having to implement rules passed by uh, other people. And when it comes to other European developments, like, for example, the development, hopefully, of a European energy policy, including the establishment of European, of European uh, grids. We have a vital interest, and, uh, and successive governments, an important say uh, in, uh, in uh, those debates. Do we want to exclude ourselves from those decisions by which we would be affected? That we would, we would have, to, in order to which is the political argument, we would have to implement their rules. The political argument you gave yeah, in the first let, half. Let, let me respond. Um, take the example I gave. The European Union is, uh, either has or is negotiating free trade deals with nearly half the countries in the world, including places like Mexico and Korea. How much is Korea paying for access to the single market? I can tell you it's not. So we can negotiate that sort so of deal. Let's, that sort that out. let's just sort that out. Stephen, do you agree it would be possible to negotiate a free trade deal with the EU on the sorts of terms that Roger is talking about? I do not believe that we would be able to negotiate that deal without there being a cash price to be, to okay. be, to be paid for. And, and, and the well, because the, the, of course the EU might take a different attitude towards us than they do to Korea, because we're an old member. Okay. Uh, sorry, can I, can I just make my, my, my other point, though? So Stephen is very concerned about us not having influence in Brussels. Do we agonise because we don't have influence in Washington or don't have influence in Tokyo? You know, what, why... <laughs> okay. That's countries I don't govern back themselves to sorry, and do a Roger, good job of it. I don't want to go back to influence because we, we've, we've sort of done influence. I want, I want to keep on. Mark Reckless, very briefly. The key point is we are the European Union's largest export market, and they expel, export far more to us than we, than, we, than we export to them. And are you proposing that we would impose import restrictions on European Union goods if they, if they didn't I am saying it is ridiculous to say we couldn't negotiate a free trade agreement without paying them some huge bribe for it when they sell more to us than we sell to them and we're their largest market. Right, and I'm sure the situation would be which the British Parliament would be freely legis legislating uh, to enact the rules that had been adopted uh, a few weeks earlier by 26 other countries in Brussels. Right. We've got to a, a, a conclusion on that particular theme. George... On this, I think the truth is that if you look narrowly at the position of our trade with Europe, uh, then the current arrangement is better than the alternatives. It's better than what Norway's got, because they accept about 75% of EU um, laws, but don't have a say in them. And it's better than what Turkey has, because Turkey, for instance, is in the customs union, unlike Norway, but it's not in the single market. And the single market is important to Britain's financial services industry, and the customs union is important to Britain's manufacturing uh, industry. And one reason, uh, one point that Sir Stephen didn't pick up on is that there are quite complicated country of origin rules that come into play, which would complicate it if we came outside the, the customs union. However, where Sir Stephen's absolutely wrong is to, to turn a blind eye to some of the costs uh, of our membership, the economic costs, and that the burden of 
social and employment legislation and general laws that spew out of the European Union on a, on a weekly basis isn't something that you can just turn a blind eye to. The Agency Workers Directive um, is a, a very expensive thing for British industry at a time when we're tr struggling to come out of a recession. The Working Time Directive costs the National Health Service about £3 billion a year. And then you've got the issue of the EU budget. And it's inexcusable that the EU still pays to have two parliaments and trucks everything down to Strasbourg uh, two or three days a month. And it's inexcusable that their accounts haven't been signed off for some 15 years due to fraud and corruption. And we've got to tackle these things. And I think we do need to drive change in the European Union by freezing uh, their budget, not just in real terms, but in absolute terms, so that you drive change and get them to uh, cut their cloth like everybody else in the world is but having to. George, these are not decisions of ours. We don't decide they, uh, no, where the wrong. Parliament is. They, we don't no, decide wrong. what the budget is. So no, you're wrong. We, we have do to decide agree what the that with is. 27 other the, members. The, no, that's absolutely wrong. The long-term budget is decided in um, the Council of Europe, which requires unanimity. Britain has a veto on the budget. We can veto the budget. There's nothing anybody can do about that. And that is why, coming back to Stephen's point, we can get leverage during this forthcoming budget negotiation. And I think it's absolute nonsense to say that the Agency Workers Directive and Working Time Directive are an integral part of the single market. They're not. They're social legislation that's separate from the single market. And the truth is that you, know, you can negotiate this. If it's acceptable for us to, having a, to have a floating exchange rate, for God's sake, within a, within a single market, why is it not acceptable to pursue slightly different employment and social policies? But do you think they the would let market? us have different social regulation and have the same access that we currently have to their market. Absolutely. The I, 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 absolutely. I you think, think they they'd let us undercut them on the social bit while having access yes, to Yes, I do, because I think others will want to reduce that as well. Well, Britain's not alone here. And you mustn't forget I, also that there are other elements and other European directives that other countries have problems with. Um, Germany don't like a lot of the home affairs stuff that was foisted on them by Tony Blair. They've still not implemented. They're in breach of European law. They've not implemented the European Data Retention Directive, for instance. There are bits that other countries would like to get rid of, and we can trade. You get rid of what you don't like, we'll get rid of what we don't okay. like. Stephen, quick comment and then a couple from well, the floor. Trade-offs on individual bits of legislation are part and parcel of the normal toing and froing of day-to-day -day, uh, EU, EU business. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with, uh, with that. But I, I don't uh, uh, agree that the, what are now the fundamentals of EU law, including the social legislation, would be so easily uh, set aside uh, in, the way that you, uh, in the way that you suggest. You are right that the overall financial framework in, of the European Union is decided by unanimity. Uh, and we do have uh, allies... Uh, among some of the other net payers to the European uh, Union in, in limiting uh, the increase uh, in the budget. That budget is about 1% of the total uh, annual income of the, uh, uh, of the European Union. And some of that money is not well spent. Uh, there are still reforms to be made, uh, as, for example, in the common agricultural policy. But I believe that the policy which we have supported of making structural fund payments to the poorer members of the European Union comes back to the point that it is in our interest to have stable countries as our neighbours, and that stability does depend upon a level of economic prosperity to which we've rightly, in my view, contributed. On that point, though, if I might just say, on the structural funds, um, even under the last government, they advocated, the Treasury advocated, that the richer member states, those coming up to 90% of average uh, uh, EU income per capita, should actually be removed from the regional funds policy, and that should be focused and targeted only on the emerging East European countries who needed that help for convergence. And that actually all those countries would be better off. The richer states would be able to uh, tailor their own independent regional policy that suited their country, and you would still support those poorer countries in the East. So the, 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 the um, example you've picked is 
is the wrong one to pick, I'd say, because structural funds is the one area where actually nearly every EU country would be better off if actually it was repatriated for the richer member states. Okay. I want to, uh, I want to just ask you a question, Steve, because I don't want us to forget the euro. I mean, you're not in favour of us joining the euro now, are you? Or, or, or are no, you? I'm not. But I, but you were, the, though. You uh, were. Yes, I mean, at, the time, at, the, at, the, at the time that the... Uh, I mean, 1999, when the euro came into, into force. I has, it, has the fact that you were so obviously wrong in such a striking way on that particular issue, has it, has, it, has it made you more, if you like, modest and humble in your views on, on, the, rest well, of the, on, the, on the rest of the whole others, package? Others will have to be the judge of, uh, of that after, uh, uh, after, after this evening. I thought, I mean, I didn't, I didn't do it out of uh, kind of... Uh, uh, woolly idealism. I did it because I believed, wrongly as it uh, turned out, that those countries would coordinate their economic policies across the board much more closely and intensively uh, than actually happened. In other words, that they would remedy some of the defects in the Maastricht Treaty which set up the single currency that were then uh, identified. And I accept that that, uh, that hasn't happened. But I think the, the position that was taken by the John Major government is the right position. That there is no cost to Britain in having a situation in which we are free to stay out, but we keep the right to go in. We don't know. None of us can know what will happen uh, in the Eurozone. And it might be, it might not be, but it might be in 10 years' time that actually uh, a government of the day might think, well, in economic terms, maybe it is in our interest, at which point we have not, by leaving, uh, abrogated the right to do so without and paying a price for doing so. And the fact that there will be, or that it now seems quite possible there'll be an inner core and an outer core which, which inner core and an outer periphery, which bit would you really like us to be in? Deep down, you'd rather we were in the inner bit with well, the fiscal, monetary and banking union? If That is my personal conviction. But wh whichever bit you're in, as it were, and realistically we're going to be on the outer uh, bit for the foreseeable future, what you have to do is engage in a realistic and, and serious and positive negotiation. What is our interest at the moment? Our interest is not to see that single market which we've fought to uh, achieve become undermined because there's a separate set of rules being made by a core group of, of countries. That means we should be engaging in a, in a negotiation with our partners to seek now to achieve that. All right. I'd like to take a few um, questions from the floor. Um, any questions that are coming more from a sceptical, anti-Euro, anti-European perspective? Just, right. I just need to get a, a, a bit of balance. We'll take the gentleman on the end there in the light blue shirt, and then any upstairs, we'll take the guy uh, in the glasses there. Yeah, just keep waving your hand. That's it. Yeah. You first. From the Banker magazine. Now, I'm a Eurosceptic, but I actually believe that we should stay in the European Union because my views are very similar to George Eustace's. Um, but what I'm worried about is this concept of ever closer union. So, if in 10 years' time we came back, the question was should uh, the, the, the motion was Britain should promote the creation of a United States of Europe with uh, the political, uh, fiscal, and monetary union, what would Sir Stephen be thinking then? What would his argument be then? Two sentences, Stephen. Yeah, my, my, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to stick to my argument on the, on, on, on the motion because my, I, my position is 
not that you should kind of approach this in, a, in an airy-fairy way, but you should say, what, what, what is the British national interest? I believed in 1975 it was to stay in. I believe now it is to, to, to stay in. Uh, who knows where we might be in 25 years' uh, time. In 2050, the economics of the world, if predictions are correct, and again, there are many uncertainties. Who knows what will happen in, in China, for example. Uh, the balance of economic power in the world will be hugely different. And at that point, no doubt, the British people may want to look again. My argument is that now, and for the foreseeable future, by which I mean uh, probably beyond the next uh, 10 years, I cannot see a British national interest which is served by our coming out, particularly for the political reasons that we talked about at the beginning. Skeptics, I haven't heard, panel, I haven't heard much from you about the, the desire to grow the relationship with the rest of the world out, uh, outside the EU. I mean, do you... That is critically important. I mean, we're constantly hearing that we do 50% of, of our export of goods to the European Union. Actually, it's nearer 42 43%. But the European Union is less than 20% of global trade. So for me, the 40%, 42% figure is not a measure of how well we're doing in Europe. It's how we've become engaged in this inward-looking protectionist economic block, and we have failed to exploit uh, opportunities in China, in India, uh, in the Americas, in the parts of the world that are growing, because the European Union, and everybody agrees on this, I'm sure Sir Stephen will confirm it, the European Union is in long-term relative economic decline, its share of uh, world trade, uh, and world GDP is continuously going down, why do we in Britain want to focus our attention exclusively or primarily uh, on a block which is in long-term relative decline? That's a serious issue. Okay, a couple more um, uh, interventions from the floor. Um, anybody, not just sceptics now, any, uh, any, any flavour or uh, comment? Uh, yes, the gentleman at the back in the light blue shirt. Oh, no, we had the gentleman here first, didn't we? Yes. yes. Okay. Um, good evening. My name is William Wong. Um, on the subject of political and economic interdependence, who needs who more, the UK vis-à-vis -vis the rest of the EU? And also very importantly, given that we are not likely to join the Euro anytime soon, what in real practical terms, in terms of influence, do we have in the slow lane anyway? Thank you. Yes, you see, I, I, thank you for that. And, and I, I, I slightly wonder whether the, the whole events in the EU are making this debate a much less important one <laughs> than it used to be because effectively they are moving off into a, a second tier, a core. We're not in that core. We're not debating on whether we're going to be in that core because we're not going to be. But, that, but, 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 that, but that, that's, that's a pretty existential uh, question, Evan. I mean, we should, be, we, should be ask, we should be asking ourselves what is of the vital British national interest. But their, their, interest, their interest is so big. I mean, this is the point at which the, the damage they can do to themselves or to the rest of the world is so large that our little national interest is not even going to factor for three minutes in the Eurozone as they try and get out of this, is it? I, mean, well, whether it does mean, I think it does mean, uh, Evan, that you know, the crisis in the EU is so large that this is an opportunity for change. And so all those defeaters who say, oh, you just have to do, uh, do what they want and go along with it, I think are wrong, are wrong for, you know, for the first time. And, you know, I don't this, know, do you think the Germans are going to really think that the British concerns with the, absolutely, they will. the working I'll time directive is the, the, yes, the big issue in Europe the, at the, the moment? German, the German government's already, the German government already is starting to recognise this fact because the truth is that Germany... Uh, shares a lot of Britain's outlook when it comes to liberalising uh, the single market, for instance, uh, which France doesn't share. So Germany actually wants Britain there as an ally, as do many other countries. And you know, since we've published this paper arguing for renegotiation, I've had many uh, European embassies uh, contact me wanting to 
discuss this because they're very interested in Britain's position on this. And you know, the, quick the, the answer is we can do this. We can. Okay, and we just you. have to stop being so insecure and defeatist about it. Quick one, Mark Reckless, quick retort, and then we'll take another couple from the floor. Well, I mean, so Stephen's argument for being in the EU seems to be that we have a, a great deal of influence there. And I, I'm not sure that we do. We have 8% of the votes. And he says that oh, if we weren't in the EU, we'd have to obey their rules anyhow. But we'd only have to do that on the small and declining proportion of our exports that go to the EU. We'd have to trade freely with the rest of the world and we'd be able to run our own, own economy and our own interests again. Helen, I'd like to get your comments on this issue about whether the changes that are occurring in Europe at the moment or seem likely to occur mean this whole issue is less important than it used to be. Well, it can't be important as it can't be less important as long as we're in the EU and we have to obey the rules. I mean, it's not it the 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 big issue our membership of the EU remains, and the question of the acquis communautaire, which I think Mark mentioned earlier, which means it always ever goes it, it just goes forward with a few little twitches here and there, remains with us as does the ever closer union of the people, which is there in the preamble to the Treaty of Rome and and to all the other treaties. So therefore. In order to renegotiate or change a few a little bit of here and there, we actually have to take the treaties apart and start all over again. Now, if we're going to do that, well, we may as well be outside and have different, um, a different relationship. And may I just add that all these arguments about how we wouldn't have any uh, influence and we wouldn't have any, uh, any say in the matter and everybody would leave us and we would not be able to trade if we were out of the EU, where all, every single one of them was used in 1999 about the euro. If we don't go in the euro, we will lose all influence, we will have no direct um, investment, we will not have this, we will not have that. Exactly the same arguments are now coming up. They were wrong then, they are wrong now. Okay, a quick more from the floor. Have we got any women who want to ask questions? I don't like to just take one type of male voices in these things. Oh yes, in the front row. I'm sorry, madam, I'm looking too far. Yes, we'll take this lady here. So sorry. Yeah. Um, my name is Irina Summerton, uh, Institute of Historical Research, University of London. Closer? Okay. <laughs> um, I, I uh, am among the, the no's. Uh, Britain should leave. So um, can you just put, put, it, put, put the microphone right? That's it. That's okay, it. right. Um, and I, I should say, you can probably hear it uh, from the way I speak. I'm uh, part American, part British, and I have both points of view. But I'm passionately British in my, in my belief that Britain never should have joined the EU and uh, is a misfit and should leave at the first opportunity. Um, but um, that's, that's me. And just, I'm, just as briefly as you can, a question sorry, or a comment. Yes. doesn't matter which it is. But just <laughs> as a, no, I mean, it, it's about the point of looking ahead uh, and re remaining committed or not to um, uh, the European Union and, and, and so on. Uh, I mean, it's, it's worse than, than declining. Uh, I'm writing a book on what's wrong with the EU and the, and the euro. And um, uh, the euro is going to break up in the next uh, uh, 12 to 18 months, for sure. I mean, th this is now the majority opinion uh, uh, among uh, serious commentators, uh, historians, and economists. how would how would Britain leaving the European Union stop that mattering to us? And clearly, that would it's going to have ructions all over the place. But how would leaving it's, help? 
uh, well, Britain would be uh, ruling its own fate and have, uh, you know, in, in areas where the European Union uh, interferes economically. Uh, Britain can make its own decisions. Britain has lost a great deal of independence. And, and by the way, many of, of these serious commentators, they're not by any means all uh, Eurosceptic, uh, believe, as I do, that the, the failure of the euro will uh, destroy the EU. So, I mean... Which is uh, another whole get, topic which would, 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 would real, make... You know, yeah. let, let's get real Very and understand briefly. that there may not be a, a, any EU for Britain to leave. Can I ask you just to say your name again with the microphone close to your mouth? They didn't catch it up Yes, there. Irina Somerton. And, and, and in your affiliation? Uh, Institute of Historical Research, University of London. And the book is The Manifest Destiny of the <laughs> European Union. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, one last comment. We've got it. We'll take one from the guy in the, the, the gingham shirt over there, right, right round there, just to make you run. Uh, last comment, and then we're going to go back to a vote, and I'll give Stephen the last word. Um, I wonder if the concern about local um, democracy for a nation state is a bit naive in in this in. Um, economic terms. I, increasingly, small countries are going to be very vulnerable in a world of big trade blocks. There has been concern expressed that we only have 8% of the say, and that is a worry, but that's 8% of something, maybe better than 100% of nothing. I, th I think, Helen, I'm going to let you answer that. Um, I'm 100 sorry. 100% of nothing, or well, I think 0% of something. I wouldn't I call the Swiss economy nothing, and I wouldn't call the free trade agreements that the EU has been forming with uh, South Korea, with uh, Singapore, with Mexico, with a number of countries, 100% nothing. These are countries that are negotiating free trade agreements to their benefit as well as anybody else's. So therefore, how can anyone say that is 100% of nothing? They're often quite small countries. They seem to manage to negotiate agreements, whereas we have 8% and get outvoted. Okay. We've battled through the politics. We've battled through the economics. You will notice, ladies and gentlemen, that we have basically had a panel of... We've got two Conservative MPs, a UKIP member and one non-politician, the arguments have been, if you like, steered towards liberal markets, free trade, single markets, making capitalism work in Europe. I want to take one last question from someone here who is positively left-wing and who does not like the way any of these people are talking. Even Stephen is accepting that free trade is a good thing. Have we got someone who is much more left-wing uh, from a pro or an anti-perspective? In the blue um, shirt there, yes, sir. Totally opposed to the EU, and I think we should get out of it as soon as possible. But I'm not opposed to it for the same reason as that bunch of Tories up there, <laughs> that bunch of right-wing <laughs> liberals. We're not Tories. We're not no. Tories. Well, as far as I'm concerned, someone who, th who quotes Thatcher is an arch-Tory, even if he's a member of UKIP. I quoted Enoch uh, Wait, wait, wait. Yeah. Wait, wait. No, okay. Just give us, let's, let's hear the argument. Let's hear, because you're going to give us a sceptical argument, and I'm interested in this from another perspective. Let's well, all you've got to do is look at what's happening in Greece, Spain, Portugal, Italy, and Ireland. Countries that have been decimated by the International Monetary Fund in cahoots with the European Central Bank. Their economies have been destroyed. 
their workers have been made unemployed, they're all going to face, they've been told they're going to face austerity measures maybe for decades. How is that future going to be welcomed by those people in those countries? You've got no solutions, you support capitalism, we want something different and it's nothing to do with what you've got to offer. Out of the EU, a socialist Europe. Right. <laughs> I'm, I'm aren't you glad you asked? <laughs> so... I wanted, us to, I wanted us to have a different and alternative perspective, <laughs> and we got that. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir, for that. Stephen, do you want to just answer that? Because <laughs> actually, no, I don't think I do. probably where a very large number of people are. Where probably where a very large number of people are. No, I don't, I just, I, we'd, we'd be here for another half hour. I, think, okay. I, think, I don't think I do. We haven't, we haven't got all day. Um, ladies and gentlemen, what I'd like to do is to... Uh, see where the balance of opinion is. Now, it has become very obvious through the course of this debate that this is not a balanced audience or representative of opinion in the country, which, as we say, is uh, somewhat sceptical of membership of the EU. At the beginning, you were overwhelmingly, what did we think, about 90% pro, about 90% pro. So what I'd like you to do is going to do the same thing as before. We're going to do the shout test and the show of hands. Those of you who, at the end of the debate, having listened to the arguments, are in favour of Britain remaining within the EU, shout yay. Yay! Those of you who are against, shout nay. nay. Yays, put your hands up. Nays, put your hands up. I don't think it's changed one little jot. I don't think it's changed one little jot at all. Stephen, just comment. Give us the. Po I don't want to use us, you to repeat the argument. Give us a comment on the arguments that have been thrown at you. Because, in a way, Everything hinges on the deal that we would get if we left, the deal we can negotiate if we stay in, the potential renegotiation. That's what it's all about, isn't it? It's all contingent no, it I don't views. Think it, I don't think it is. I think, I think fundamentally it is, about, it is certainly about a view of British national interest, including economic uh, interest. But I think you have to take a view, and none of us can predict, but you have to take a view of the state of the world and the things that, to which you attach uh, importance. I personally, having lived throughout my life uh, in West, uh, Western Europe at peace, want to maintain that. And I do believe that spreading democracy around most of the European continent has been an important contribution to that. I believe that the soft power which the European Union exercises through its aid programs and its foreign policy is an important part of that. I don't believe uh, that in terms of our domestic systems, our social welfare systems and so on, we have as much in common with the United States, let alone uh, the Commonwealth, where 28 countries still have capital punishment, as we do with our European partners. We have more in common, I believe, in terms of British values with our European partners than with any other group of countries. And I think that that isn't... If you, if you have a view of Britain and what Britain stands for, I believe that that is where we are most likely to continue to find the representation of our interests and our identity. And I don't want, I don't want a right of reply panel because we're out of time and that we've heard the arguments very clearly stated. Um, let me say, at the end of that uh, heated and interesting debate, thank you to Roger Helmer, Helen Samueli, Mark Reckless and George Eustace. Thank you all, panel, for your points and questions. And thank you to Sir Stephen, who had battle against the panel. Thank you all. <laughs>